0: This is a podcast about Jeopardy.
1: Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. Kyle is out this week, committed to um, a high school musical. And so we have a pretty special treat today. A friend of Kyle's and mine, who we met, all, all three of us, as well as some other folks at our Jeopardy! tape day. Uh, We are welcoming Lori Lander-Goodman to the podcast. Lori was uh, with us when we taped our shows. She defeated the returning champion at the beginning of season 35, Rick Terpstra, um, and she won her game with 34,401. Unfortunately, on her second game, that was Kyle's first game, and he uh, defeated her in that game and went on to his seven game winning streak. As well as being a Jeopardy champion, she is the executive director of a nonprofit in Goleta, California. So, welcome, Lori.
0: Thanks for having me, Emily. I'm really delighted to be here. We're so glad to have
1: you. So, Kyle's out, but as usual, we are going to be talking about this week's Jeopardy episodes. We're talking about the week of February 24 through 28. After that, we're going to move into a deep dive. Lori has brought a deep dive about a topic I'll be trying to guess, and we will finish with a quiz. So let's go into Monday. Sounds good. We're talking about Monday, February 24, 2020, and we have the contestants, Steve Goodrow, a professor from Seattle, Washington, Jennifer Aziz, a lawyer from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and Mackenzie Jones, a program development director from Tulsa, Oklahoma, whose five-day cash winnings total 130,803. And we get the Jeopardy categories Fairy Tale Police Report, Around the World, Game Time, Lifetime Movie Titles, Four Letter Words with One Vowel, and American Women and Politics.
0: I love the category fairy tale police report. I generally like anything that has to do with fairy tales and children's literature. But um, like the contestants, I was really stumped by the $400 clue. The clue was open and shut. He admitted to killing Cockrobin in cold blood with bow and arrow. Yeah, I didn't know that one either.
1: The correct response was the Sparrow. I had never heard of.
0: Neither had I. I. I did look it up this morning and it's a British nursery rhyme from the 18th century, 1700s. And I think it's a child's book of verse. I don't know why they would put that in the $400 level. Oh, that seemed really obscure. to yeah, me. Yeah, I totally
1: agree. That's that. I mean, I wasn't surprised it was a triple stumper. It, it, that seems like. They miscalibrated the difficulty level on that one.
0: Indeed. I also really enjoyed the American women in politics category. Mm,
1: Yeah, me too. And I'm not surprised that you did. I know that's, uh, that's something that you're interested in. I thought to myself, Lori will like that when I saw that. Oh, I didn't know that the Red Balloon filmmaker was also the creator of the board game Risk. That... That really surprised me.
0: I didn't know that either. That's I love Jeopardy questions that category game time. I certainly could figure out all of the answers, but I learned a lot from the questions. Yeah, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Although I think I probably knew that Cards Against Humanity was called Kartenfreude. That seems like a bit of trivia that would have been shared in my household. Yeah.
1: Are you big Cards
0: Against Humanity fans over there? I'm actually not allowed to play it. (laughs) My uh, son started playing it while he was in college. And when I expressed interest, he's like, nope, you are not allowed to play this game. (laughs) So... So I have never played Cards Against Humanity. Okay.
1: I, I could see not wanting to play Cards Against Humanity with one's with one's parent.
0: You would think not.
1: We get the Daily Double at clue number six. It's in the Around the World category at 600. Steve finds it and wagers 1,000. That's a true Daily Double for him. Uh, he's in the lead. Mackenzie has 800 and Jennifer still has zero at that point. He gets the clue, the co-princes of this tiny country in the Pyrenees are the French president and the bishop of Urgell. He correctly responds, what is Andorra? And that's one of those things that the co-princes of Andorra is something that comes up enough in trivia that, you know, if you're you're a trivia person, you should file it away if you haven't already.
0: That makes sense. I didn't know it from co-princes, but when I think about a tiny country in the Pyrenees, Andorra is what comes up for me. Mm,
1: yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's another, I think those are, those are two, um, two totally reasonable routes.
0: There was a triple stumper on the 26th clue in the American Women in Politics category. The question was in 1996 and again in 2000 when Nona Leduc was the vice presidential running mate of this Green Party candidate
1: how quickly we've forgotten Ralph Nader.
0: Yeah, I um, this was one where I figured my age meant that it was an obvious answer for me and neither Jennifer nor Steve was able to ring in correctly. Uh, I think someone guessed Jill Stein. Ralph Nader was such a big factor in the 2000 election. Right. I had strong feelings about him. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's burned into my brain as current politics, not really history. Yeah. Similarly, um, Madeleine Albright, though they got this one, uh, it feels very current to me. I have had the opportunity to meet her a few times. Uh, The first time I met her was shortly after her term as Secretary of State. She was promoting her book. And she was the featured speaker for an event where I was staffing it. And I had the opportunity to tell her that when I was in high school, I aspired to be the first woman secretary of state. Hmm. Of course, she she did it and um, was very much um, an idol, a heroine of mine. So it was very Mm -hmm. exciting to meet her. And she is indeed as diplomatic as they come. I've been impressed. By what it means to be a diplomat by hearing her speak multiple times. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool.
1: That's a that's a very specific dream for a high schooler to have. Um, I'm not I'm not surprised, but
0: well, that's, I that's cool. I didn't even take political science in college, so it, it was a dream that died pretty quickly. But yeah, that was kind of me in high school. Yeah. The scores at the end of the Jeopardy round, we have Mackenzie at 2800, Jennifer at 2400, And Steve at 7,000. Our double Jeopardy round categories are electricity, city films, only the good characters die young, 19th century history, three O's for you, and macho cheese. I don't know about you, Emily, but I love cheese, so any category that has to do with cheese makes me hungry.
1: Yeah, I uh, I enjoy cheese categories. Although I didn't do quite as well as I wanted to on this one, I couldn't remember uh, the very last question of the of the round um, at the two thousand dollar level. It said that this Belgian product is undoubtedly one of the stinkiest of the strong smelling cheeses. That was a triple stumper, um, and it's Limburger. I couldn't remember it.
0: Yeah, when I think stinky uh, cheese, I think Limburger, and I also think the B fifty two song. Um, which mm. I kind of broke out into song, which is not very melodic, B 52s I don't know if you're familiar with it. And I, I'm not sure which song it is. I just know the lyric is I'm not your limburger. Oh,
1: that vaguely rings a bell, although I can't I can't remember I can't remember much of the song at all. We'll look it up. I loved the only the good characters die young category. And I think I've read all of these except for the one at the $2,000 level, which we'll get to yes. later on.
0: I missed um, a separate piece. I knew I was supposed to know what John Knowles had written, but I have not read that book. And I couldn't pull it up in time.
1: Yeah, I've read that one. I didn't love it. I do love everything John Green has ever written. Um, that's at the yes. $800 level. The The question there was, you know whose fault it really is that Augustus Waters dies of cancer in this novel? John Green. That's that's the fault in our stars. Yeah. I, I love all his work. I also like his podcasts. He and his brother co-host an advice podcast called Dear Hank and John.
0: Oh, I've heard of that.
1: Yeah. And then John by himself hosts a podcast called The Anthropocene Reviewed where he reviews and rates various aspects of the human-centered planet on a five-star scale which is simultaneously lovely and like kind of quirky and and funny. So, anyway, those are both worth checking out as well as his books and I guess this has been book recommendations with Emily.
0: That's I, I'm ready I was ready for that. <laughs>
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I am nothing if not predictable. (laughs) Uh,
0: And in fact, uh, this is the only John Green book that I've read. It's quite the tearjerker. And I I should get around to reading more of his books because they are well recommended, but also, you know, sort of easy to get into and, Mm -hmm. and read quickly. So good for travel. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that the 400 clue in 19th century history was uh, right in the topic of one of your deep dives. Um, That's right. So I thought you must have been jumping up and down uh, that it was a triple stumper and you had just spoken about it.
1: Yes. And I wouldn't have known it if I hadn't prepared the deep dive because... Often I I choose things that I don't know anything about. Sometimes I choose things that are like really in my wheelhouse, but Dodge City was um, not familiar to me. Uh, The clue was April 9, 1878 was a normal night in Dodge City. Jack Wagner killed Marshal Ed Masterson and this brother of Ed's killed Jack. So if you know one name for Dodge City, it should be Wyatt Earp. But if you know two, the other one is Bat Masterson, who is the correct answer for this one. So that was fun to see.
0: We find Daily Double number two as the 13th clue in the round. It is, after success at Second Bull Run, Confederate armies began an invasion of Maryland. This September 17th, 1862 battle stopped them. The answer is Antietam, and Steve gets it right. Antietam happened to have been an answer on my Game of Jeopardy with uh, Rick, and Becky Warren, Rick Terpster and Becky Warren, Rick was the one who was able to ring in correctly. And I'm told that one of the Jeopardy Pavlovs is, if you hear Civil War bloody battle, it's always Antietam, which I didn't know before being on Jeopardy, but now I will never forget it. And so I was also able to get the answer to this, even though it didn't say bloody. Nice. Steve
1: was in a pretty solid lead at that point, And... Was able to uh, was able to increase his lead, but at daily double number three, uh, clue twenty three in the only the good characters die young category at the two thousand dollar level, Mackenzie wagered seven thousand of her eight thousand dollars. Steve had sixteen thousand eight hundred. Jennifer was at six thousand, and she had the clue. After saving some kids' lives in The Outsiders, Johnny tells this main character to stay gold, then joins our category. And she correctly responded, who is Ponyboy? I have not read The Outsiders, but I did just read an Ask a Manager where uh, somebody wrote into, I can't remember her name, Allison, something of Ask a Manager, because someone that this person supervises has been signing off on professional emails with the sign-off "Stay gold, pony boy," oh. and uh, <laughs> it's a pretty informal office. But Allison of Ask a Manager encouraged this person to um, counsel their their direct report not to do that anymore.
0: <laughs> yes, probably not the most professional <laughs> sign-off. I had ironically seen an article um, that I think may have even been shared by someone who both of both of us know. On The Outsiders and on the legacy of that book, which was written by a teen and really was the a teen novel in a teen voice. And huh. so I, I read The Outsiders probably when I was, you know, 13, but I, I didn't remember the details of it. But having read that article, Ponyboy was fresh in my mind. Yeah, I've I've
1: just, it keeps coming up, and uh, it feels like a gap in in my reading, so I've, and I figure, I mean, it's young, it's a a teen novel, how long can it take? So I've just added it to my list. So going into Final Jeopardy, Mackenzie has 15,800, Jennifer has 6,800, and Steve has 16,400, so Mackenzie's been able to close that gap up, and... um, Come in in a pretty close second place, heading into Final Jeopardy, where the category is Music Stars. And the clue is on July 26, 1972, he testified before a Senate subcommittee on national penitentiaries. Jennifer gets it correct with a $6,700 wager, uh, responding, Who is Johnny Cash? Mackenzie has wagered everything which is strategically not the best decision from a close second, but it pays off because she also has who is cash. Uh, Steve has a $15,201 wager. That's a cover bet, but he's written who is Elvis Presley. So he drops down and Mackenzie is our winner going into Tuesday. With
0: a hefty, a hefty payday. I'm kind of wondering, you know, with that bet, if at a certain point you say I I will either maximize or it's okay if I'm done, you know where the competitive yeah. juice is in terms mm-hmm. of maximizing your opportunities to win. Um, because I yeah. feel like in the prior week's games, Mackenzie was able to make strategic bets, but I I don't remember for sure. Yeah,
1: I'm I'm curious. Um, I think I think that she I think she was being strategic in the in the in the prior week. Given that this was a Monday game, you know, and like with the with the five, you know, that she's just come back and gone through the whole briefing and gotten the makeup on, and you know, it doesn't seem like the time to kind of call it quits, you know, or take, take unnecessary risks. But maybe she was just really confident in music stars. She's been very strong in music categories.
0: That could be. It could also be that at that point you think she needs Steve to lose, to win. Right. So if she thinks she's going to get it right... She might as well bet it all. Yeah. And the, the difference between 1000 and 2000 for second place is not necessarily worth uh, strategizing about. But in this case, she was close enough that she could have won with a win or a loss, with a closer bet.
1: Right. Exactly. So uh, inspired by this final Jeopardy, um, my daughter and I listened to Live from Folsom Prison while we were cleaning the kitchen and whatnot. And so now my four year old is a Johnny Cash fan.
0: Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> she has
1: she has eclectic taste in music. Um she she likes the Beatles, <laughs> she likes Rihanna. <laughs> she gets very specific about what she's into, but now she's into Johnny Cash, so I think I'll call that a win. I uh you have to you have to know that Johnny Cash recorded some of his best known albums at Folsom prison and San Quentin, right? And is there one more? I can't
0: remember. I don't know, but I do know that associating Johnny Cash with Folsom Prison is another one of those trivia things that um, I've needed to learn actually post Jeopardy. And I I believe it came up in Learned League maybe last season. Yeah, I
1: think last season sounds right. Um, That got really seared in for me because I missed it on Learned League and then met my husband at Pub Trivia where it was a Geeks Who Drink franchise pub trivia. And we had um, a question about it that I was able to get right because I'd missed the same, like a similar question six hours earlier.
0: Right. Well, that'll do it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So for Tuesday, our contestants are Sanda Kin, an artist and performer from Los Angeles, California, Christopher Cartagena, a social studies educator from Royal Palm Beach, Florida, and Mackenzie Jones, a program development director from Tulsa, Oklahoma, whose six day cash winnings total 162,403. So I noticed immediately that Sanda is from Los Angeles, and one of the things that I figure when there is Someone local from, you know, sort of from within a 100 mile radius of uh, Culver City, which Culver City is basically in L.A., it usually means if and it's a Tuesday, it usually means that person has been there for a full day of taping before as the as a local alternate was not called and is now called back and is part of the regular contestant pool.
1: Right, like like you. Yes,
0: just like me. So one of the things I've begun to look at when I'm watching Jeopardy! is if it's a Friday and there's someone who's, again, within that 100-mile radius, they're taping on a Wednesday. And if it's a Friday and there's no one from the local area, they're taping on a Tuesday.
1: Oh, yep, that's right. Yeah,
0: I, you can back
1: it out like that. It's, it's kind of fun to have the, the insider perspective on that, I think. And you and I share the experience of sitting through a whole tape day and then getting called on the second day, which I think is really the way to compete. Not that you have any control over.
0: I think it's a whether- huge advantage. I, yeah. So the categories for the Jeopardy round are the Constitution says, geography. Who's Number One Album, Inch Word, Inch Word, and Inch is in quotation marks, Distill Crazy, and After All These Years. So we have a little punning going on with the writers there. Mm -hmm. Always Fun. I am uh, typically not great at music anymore. I used to be. But as I've gotten older, my the range of music they ask about is broader, and so that means that my knowledge is narrower. Mm, that makes sense. Basically, yeah. anything after about 1985, I'm not very good at anymore. Sanda starts us off in that category with "Baby One More Time," which for even for me, I knew that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Britney Spears. I remember that era well. Um, nineteen, like nineteen ninety seven through two thousand, is my like my best pop music wheelhouse. That was the period of time where I thought that if I knew everything about what was on the radio, that would make me cool. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> I used to carpool to school um, with. It was me and several boys. And we would listen to the radio on the way to school. And it was a long drive. It was a 35 or 40 minute drive. And they would quiz me as each song came on, who wrote the song, what was it called? So mm-hmm. I am really, really good at 70s rock and roll. All
1: right. For that
0: reason. Nice. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um yeah, I I knew a few in that category but not all of them. Uh the $400 clue in 2008 and 2009 on the Billboard 200 and Top Country Album charts. Fearless. That's Taylor Swift. I didn't know the $600 clue 1982. Uh, see, but that this, that one
0: was yeah. in my wheelhouse. I won't we'll never forget the summer uh-huh. of 82 when I graduated from high school and this song was this album was on all the time and it was a big deal that the go-go's were all female it was the first all-female band at least that's what how it was touted all-female players and that they wrote their own music Mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's accurate that's how i remember it so i didn't look that up i i could be wrong that
1: sounds right i did know the band who sang bad moon rising on the 1969 album green river that's Credence Clearwater Revival. I bet you did, too.
0: I did. And that yeah. seems to be a favorite of Jeopardy's to have uh, Credence in their clues. Yeah. Someone must be a fan. I, I I guess
1: so. And and the Backstreet Boys are trying to make a comeback. That was the $1,000 clue.
0: Did you get that one? I, 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 I had no I idea. Did, I did, yes.
1: I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> in 2019, this boy band back on top with DNA. Yeah, I knew that one. I'm normally good at at wordplay categories, but in inch word, inch word, something about the $800 clue just threw me off. The thick fur of this rodent helps it survive the cold temperatures that occur way up high in the Andes. That's a chinchilla. Yes. All the other things, the inch functioned as one syllable, but I think if you break chinchilla down into syllables, it's like chin Chilla, and it would never have occurred to me. I think I could have probably thought about that for several minutes before I thought of a chinchilla.
0: Yeah, I seem to remember chinchillas being very trendy. I see. Now I'm like completely harkening back to high school. For some reason, chinchilla was very trendy. That and that came for me. And I also generally like wordplay as long as it's not anagrams. And I found this one to be hard. I don't know if I was tired when I was watching. But I missed the $1,000 clue. Um, a wheel of a chariot was secured by this ancient item, which in modern usage can refer to any integral part used to hold something together. And the answer, um, which c- Mackenzie correctly responds to, is a linchpin. Mm-hmm. Should have gotten it, was not able to pull it up. Yeah. And I had happens. never heard the, t- the uh, phrase for the $400 clue it's it follows lead pipe in an idiom for something that is a certainty and the answer is a cinch but i have never heard yeah i haven't heard that, that idiom that either idiom.
1: yeah that was that was new to me
0: we find the daily devil at clue number 20 and the the clue is along the mediterranean there's a french and an Italian, this Italian for Coast. It is found by Christopher and he wagers 2,000 of his 3,400. He's leading at this point. Uh, Santa has 1,800 and Mackenzie has 1,400. So if he misses it, he'll be tied for third with Mackenzie. But he answers correctly. What is Riviera? Way to go, Christopher. Yeah, nice work. Increasing his lead.
1: So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Mackenzie has 4,600. Christopher is in the lead with 7,200. Santa has 2,800. So picks first in Double Jeopardy, where the categories are pro bonobo work, antonyms, ancient Greek theater, aptly named, That's so 500 years ago. And playing real people. It cracked me up how they had a a really hard time saying pro bonobo work. Yes. Uh, It kept coming out pro bono. Do
0: you remember which contestant was saying pro bono? I was thinking that it was Mackenzie and that her work seems to be in the nonprofit area as a program services director although I could be assuming that wrong. So pro bono is something that comes up all the time.
1: Yeah, I think it was McKen- mckenzie who kept uh kept saying pro bono. Although they encourage you to shorten the category names.
0: Uh, right. It, so, <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I guess that is a way to shorten the category name.
0: I see that they left um, several clues on the board and yeah. I'm not remembering if there were a lot of video clues. It looks like there were two in there were, the three, there three in the in playing the real people category.
1: Yeah, and I noticed, I think those were the leftover clues from the goat tournament, right? There was one presented by Christopher Plummer Uh, One presented by Brian Cranston and one presented by Ryan Reynolds. I think each of those three celebrities presented a whole category of clues in the GOAT tournament. And so I think that um, Jeopardy! always has a sixth clue for each category held in reserve in case there's some kind of problem with a clue. Either something that is like a like a like a factual kind of problem where they decide that the that a clue was written in an ambiguous way or or something like that or if there's like a technical glitch like you know the buzzers don't work uh or something is supposed to play and doesn't i think can also be a reason that they would throw a clue away and try again so i'm guessing that these were like the sixth clues from from that event
0: Good deduction.
1: Yeah, thank you. <laughs>
0: um, have you seen um, any of those? Sh- uh, any of those movies? We saw Judy uh, not that long ago, and Renee Zellweger won the um, Oscar for her performance. It was outstanding.
1: I have seen. I haven't seen that one. I did see The Social Network. That was the twelve hundred dollar clue yes. in that category. Although I have, yeah, but that wasn't that wasn't a video clue.
0: Now that was a fun movie though,
1: yeah. yeah, it was yeah I don't think I'd seen any of the the ones uh mentioned by by the like the guest presenters of the video clues
0: yeah we saw Brian Cranston in Trembo, which is the sixteen hundred dollar clue I think that was also a, a nominated film a few years ago, but I don't recall um if he won yeah i don't I somehow don't think so
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, I got to see him on Broadway in the play Network, maybe, maybe last year. Um, He is a phenomenal performer. I, you know, I knew him for Breaking Bad. um, But seeing, seeing him like in a, in a theater where there's, you know, it's live and there's no editing just sort of reinforced for me how great he is um, at what he does. He's, he's remarkable.
0: What I miss most about living in New York, and perhaps the only thing I miss about living in New York, is being able to see shows on Broadway. Yeah. Uh, so it was a great pleasure when I was there um, last month, or two months ago now, and was able to get in a couple of uh, shows.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry I missed you when you were out here. I was out of town while you were here.
0: Yeah, It would have been fun to play trivia with you. We Yeah. We did well. Nice. <laughs> Um, were you... No thanks to me, by the way. Yeah, I assume so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we find
1: Daily Double number two in the That's So 500 Years Ago category at the $1,600 level. Mackenzie finds it and wagers 6000 of her 13000 Christopher has 9600 at that point and Santa has 3200 If she misses, she'll drop down... Into second place, but if she gets it right, she'll be close to a lot game. And the clue is one of the largest religious complexes ever built. This temple dedicated to Vishnu was mostly abandoned by fourteen thirty one, and she correctly responds, "What is Angkor Wat?" Which somehow I didn't know that that was. I assume now a Hindu temple. Yeah, yeah. That's.
0: I didn't know that. It was. I was happy to learn that. Yeah, but I. Definitely would not have gotten that one. I was thinking Hindu temple, the only thing I could think of was the Taj Mahal, which, of course, is not abandoned, but...
1: Yeah, and it's and not a
0: temple so much as a mausoleum, I think, right? right. And it's one of my um, vast blind spots where I, I just don't know very much about it, so... Yeah, um, so yeah, I,
1: I knew... About Angkor Wat, that it was a temple and that it was in Cambodia.
0: Yes, I I, don't, I know those things too. But that's but that, it. Yeah, that was that was all. So, um,
1: in any case, Mackenzie comes out of that one in a very good position.
0: And then we find daily double number three, the twenty seventh clue of the round. So we're getting close to the end in ancient Greek theater. Christopher has 10,000 to Mackenzie's 20,600 and Santa's 4,400. And he wagers 5,000, which will take him out of it if he loses and, you know, make him in a contender in second place if he gets it. And the, Clue is, Aristotle wrote about drama in his Poetics and used this word for the release of strong emotions brought on by a play. Christopher is clearly a little stumped, and he answers, what is tragedy? And the answer is catharsis. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's the end of the round. That's the last clue of the round, and Mackenzie has a lot game.
1: Yep. He couldn't have known that the round would end immediately after that clue, but given how little money was left on the board, I think it, would, it was nearly impossible for Mackenzie to finish with anything but a lot game, given his miss so probably in like completely ideal circumstances, if he'd had all the time to think it through, I think the right thing to do there would have been maybe a true daily double would have been the right wager. It's unusual for a true daily double at the end of Double Jeopardy to be the right move. But I think I think maybe in this case it was would have been.
0: Oh, well. Uh yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> Yeah, you just do your your best, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) you do your best. You don't know. Yeah. Um, Anyway, the scores going into Final Jeopardy are Mackenzie, 20,600, Christopher, 5,000, and Sanda, 4,400. And we see the category fast food clue is this sandwich was first sold in 1962 as an attempt to give the many Catholics of Cincinnati something to eat on Fridays during Lent. And everyone got it. Yeah. The filet of fish sandwich.
1: Yep. filet of fish It took me a minute to remember what the name for I, It's McDonald's, right? It's McDonald's. Yep. That's McDonald's. It took me a while. Um, uh, The first thing that came to mind was the Friendly's name for um, for a fish sandwich, which is like kind of a casual sit-down franchise um, right. that's not necessarily nationwide, but was very prevalent where I grew up. They call theirs the Fishamajig. Ah. So it took me a minute. I knew that that was wrong, uh, but it took me a minute to get to filet fish Yeah, so they all got it right. Sanda and Christopher both wagered everything. So Christopher comes in second and Sonda third. Mackenzie has a $1,205 wager. um, So finishes this game with $21,805.
0: And is now a seven-day champion with $184,208. That's right. This is an impressive woman. She really is.
1: And and she comes across as very calm to me. Yes. Um, Going into Wednesday, February 26th, the contestants are Greg Kim, a systems engineer from Washington, D.C., Sign Peterson Formy, a PhD candidate from Austin, Texas, and Mackenzie Jones, a program development director from Tulsa, Oklahoma, with seven-day cash winnings of $184,208. And we get the Jeopardy! categories, The Earth, Hairdo, Islands of Africa, Words in Plain Sight, The Digital Age, and whistleblowers.
0: So this is one of those wordplay ones with words in plain sight. For whatever reason, I really didn't do well in that category. I tend to not like anagrams and the buried words in the mm-hmm. clues. And this one I thought was very hard. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I had a hard time with this one also. I'm also realizing that I don't know if it would have made a difference in any of these, but I thought that you were supposed to work with just the words plain sight, but Alex said that it was letters from the phrase in plain sight, so you could have used that extra I and N of in, I didn't realize. But yeah, these were, these were hard for me. Also, it's been a long time since I've heard the phrase to plight one's troth.
0: Yes. Troth. Troth.
1: And pledge came to mind, but I knew that that couldn't be right because the the E's and the D didn't fit.
0: Yes. Uh, we also, pledge was the word that, you know, sort of was coming up in our house as we watched it and yeah. clearly was not correct, but uh-huh. that's what I think of with the word troth. Yeah. I especially enjoyed the islands of Africa. I've now been to Africa twice in the last six months or so. I was in Tanzania in September and in Egypt recently. And that has made all the difference because uh, when I played Kyle, we had an Africa category. The category was Mali and it was my undoing. And I, I couldn't get anything in that category. Not mm-hmm. that I was in Mali, but I I think Africa is one of those Places that Westerners, you know, for all the obvious and maybe less obvious reasons, we just don't know very much about. And travel is a great way to learn more about the world. So Mm -hmm. I was able to get everything except for the um, $600 clue, which was Africa's westernmost nation is this island group whose name means Green Cape. If I'd focused on the words "green cape," I would have gotten it because Cape Verity makes sense. But um, I had not heard of that before.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I got it from "green cape," although it took me a second to get myself to stop thinking about the Seychelles. I think that's what I said as I'm yeah. looking at it. Which, which you know, when you're doing it very quickly,
1: yeah, because you only have a few seconds to you know sort of get yourself sorted out. At the $800 level in that category, we had named for a nephew of George Washington. Bushrod Island is home to the main port of this West African nation. And this isn't exactly a Pavlov, but knowing like the the history of Liberia and that it has this kind of connection with the United States.
0: I kind of think it was Monroe. It was under Monroe's presidency. Um, That Liberia was established Right I mean, Maybe I'm just coming up with that because the capital is Monroville Yeah the
1: capital is Monrovia Monrovia So yeah there's this kind of historic connection Of it being founded Like in connection with the US um, Which I should really know more about But you don't need to know anything about Bushrod Island to see To think about uh, which African country has Places named after like US Figures and know that that's
0: Liberia. And I had just been, for the $400 clue, is sites on Elephantine Island in this river across from the city of Aswan include the Temple of Gnu, K'num. Um And the answer is the Nile. And I had just been on Elephantine Island. Nice. Uh, so that one was, you know, very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Nice to uh, have something so relatable. That's really fun. Yeah. We find the Daily Double include 10 in the Earth category. Mackenzie finds it, it's the 10th clue, and she has 3,200. The other two players, Sign and Greg, have 400 apiece, and she makes it a true Daily Double, which makes sense for early in the round, Mm -hmm. for sure. The clue is, this is a narrow strip of land connecting two larger land areas, like the one connecting North and South America. Mackenzie struggles for a bit, I think, with the pronunciation. She clearly knows what she wants to say, and she's not quite sure how to pronounce it, but she gets it right. It's an isthmus. Mm-hmm. It, you know, isthmus is spelled I-S-T-H-M-U-S and pronounced isthmus. And I really heard her try to get the T-H in there. So, but she did a great job and she got it correct.
1: Yeah. The, the Jeopardy! contestant coordinators are very clear that you don't necessarily need to pronounce things correctly if your pronunciation makes clear that you know how the word would be spelled And so in this case, I I imagine she she didn't know the correct pronunciation, so she's like, I've really got to get that TH in there so that they (laughs) know that I know it's there. Exactly. (laughs) At the end of the Jeopardy round, Mackenzie has 8,800. She's in a pretty solid lead because Sine and Greg are tied with 3,400 each. And going into Double Jeopardy, we get the categories Triumph of Arches, International Airlines, Hit and run, run in quotation marks, let's speak Hindi, names of the nineteen twenties, and
0: literary lee. I always love it when we have literature categories. They tend to be really fun for me. Yeah. I,
1: I agree. They struggled with this one and so did I. Yeah, how did how did you do in this in, in the literary lee category, Lori?
0: Yeah, of course, um, the first the $400 clue, uh, this author who dealt with race in Southern ways, um, refers to Harper Lee, that one I, I think was very accessible. And then it got much harder. The $800 clue, the Jack Reacher series include Make Me and The Affair, and it's Lee Child. And I did, in my house, pull it out right before the buzzer, but I wouldn't have rung in, you know? Had I been actually playing, I didn't have confidence in that. I haven't read any of those books.
1: Yeah, yeah, I could I could not pull that one. And I didn't know the 1600 or the $2,000 clues. I did know the 1200 children's author Virginia Lee Burton created Mike Mulligan and his, this digging machine. That's a steam shovel, Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel. That one was a triple stumper.
0: Yeah, that one, I, I could picture it, but I couldn't, I, I don't know if I read that book to my kids, but certainly not in the last 20 plus years. Yeah. I've guessed Virginia Woolf for the, um, 1601, that seemed right, but again, I didn't, I would not have rung in on that. But the $2,000 clue, his Spoon River Anthology poetry collection was turned into a Broadway musical in 1963. That's Edgar Lee Masters. And mm-hmm. I can't remember if I read that my senior year of high school or freshman year of college, but it was absolutely part of, you know, some literature class. I took along the way, and those kinds of things, you know, they kind of get into your, just get in there and you know them later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We get Daily
1: Double number two at the $2,000 level of Names of the 1920s. Mackenzie finds it and wagers 5000 of her 12000 At that point, Greg has 6600 and Sign has 3400 And she gets the clue. These two Italian-born men were executed on August 23, 1927, still maintaining their innocence. Um, She correctly
0: responds, who are Sacco and Vanzetti? Who were... um, I believe that in the game I played with Kyle, he answered Sacco and Vanzetti. We had something on Mafia Men, another category I really bombed in. Mm. we find daily double number three and clue 28 close to the end of the round at international airlines sign finds it and she has five thousand dollars Mackenzie has twenty thousand six hundred and greg has six thousand two hundred so even if she were to double up on it which would take her to 10, there's only 4,000 left on the board. If she were somehow to get all the remaining clues, she could have put herself into contention. Mm -hmm. But as it is, she wagers 2,000 on international airlines. And the clue is Air Atlas merged with another carrier to become the Royal Airline of this country. Sign guesses what is Sweden? The correct answer is Morocco. And she drops down to $3,000.
1: I don't know if there was a way to know that other than just knowing it. I don't know if there's some connection I should have between the word Atlas and Morocco.
0: Yeah, I was struggling with this because I knew it was referring to the Atlas Mountains and I knew the the Atlas Atlas Mountains 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 were in Africa and I couldn't pull up which country they were associated with. Right. And, and, you know, Atlas is a map, you know, it's a book of maps. So there's, it's not obvious that it's referring to the Atlas Mountains. Yeah. Um, and maybe you don't study your mountains or maybe you study them and you forget them. Right. But that was the link there. That yeah. was how Thank you, you for how reminding you could... me. I think, I think Alex even said
1: it after the clue, but it didn't somehow it didn't stick with me even having just watched it. So that, so that's the, that's the access point, but yeah, that's, that's tricky.
0: I, I think, um, you know, perhaps if you're really a geography whiz, you would come up with that right away, or certainly if you had traveled there, mm-hmm. but for, um, just the work of trying to memorize things that you do when you're preparing to be on Jeopardy. Um, I don't know about you, I found that any of none of that mattered in gameplay. It could have helped in something like a Daily Devil or a Final Jeopardy situation mm-hmm. where you have a slightly more time to think. Yeah. But um, there were things that came up when I played that were things we had talked about in the car driving down the day before and i just couldn't get them confidently during the game yeah
1: i i agree i mean i uh in retrospect i sort of wished that i'd started prepping seriously for jeopardy as if i was going to be on from the day that i got invited to audition somehow i didn't really think that i was ever going to get the call and so it came and took me completely by surprise and i had about about 4 weeks to prep Right. Yeah, for me the things that the things that I studied and locked down ages ago those are instant recall, but anything that I that I kind of crammed in the last few weeks, I I had would have had a hard time getting to.
0: Right. Furthermore, the things I crammed in the last few weeks, I don't remember now, you know, 18 months later. Yeah. More than 18 months later. Whereas mm-hmm. The things I know, either because they're Pavlovs or like Edgar Lee Masters where, you know, I know it. I didn't have to learn yeah. it. I know it now. <laughs> yeah, those are still there. They're not always as accessible as quickly, but they're, they're in there. Yeah. So at the end of the Double
1: Jeopardy round, Mackenzie has 20,600. That's a lot game because Sign has 3,000 and Greg has 6,200. And we get the Final Jeopardy category, Science Words and the clue is in 1611 kepler used this word from the latin for attendant to describe the discoveries of galileo
0: i thought this was a strangely worded question i had no i couldn't get what they were asking for mm-hmm. which i i don't know maybe i was just too tired i was still jet lagged last week and waking up at 4 in the morning so um Maybe my brain just wasn't working, but I was reading that question as like, these were wonderful discoveries. These were amazing discoveries. Oh, okay. Not like the discover, like what would, what were the discoveries that they discovered the moons, which were satellites? Yeah.
1: Yes. I also thought that they were looking for something more broad, although I was thinking along the lines of like astronomy, astrophysics, I thought about like orbit or elliptical. Uh, but yeah, it did it, it never occurred to me to head toward like specific like objects. right. Um, in space, I thought they were looking for more kind of principles or fields or something like that.
0: Well, and and I think that you know, if you look at the responses, sign uh, responds what is planetary mm-hmm. And Greg responds, what is astronomy? And both of those are much more in line with the way you were thinking about it. Yeah. Um, It's only Mackenzie who is able to answer correctly what is satellite. That's right. Um, And she gets
1: ribbed by Alex for her spelling again. Alex can't see, I think, in real time what the contestants are writing, but I think over at the judges table they can, and they're talking into Alex's ear. So we get like a little glimpse behind the scenes that. Mackenzie wrote sat and then light and then agonized for a few minutes, for a few seconds about what vowel to put to connect them. <laughs> she's, she's taken more than her fair share of flack for her spelling from Alex.
0: Um, <laughs> Which is completely uh, unfair. I mean, it's not a spelling really, It's not. And spelling has nothing to do with your intelligence or your ability to retrieve information any of the things that matter in jeopardy mm-hmm. if you can spell that's great yeah and it's relevant in a spelling category which i think comes up in one of the later days this week i think
1: that's right we're about to get to it not this next game but the following i think yeah but no you're totally right that it's it's a totally different kind of it's like a different kind of intelligence to. Uh, and, and not one that you're required to have for Jeopardy. And so I think this is maybe Mackenzie's third time of really knowing the correct answer, you know. And, and, you know, in situations where not everyone does, but having having a minor spelling error. And I don't know. I just feel bad for her that Alex keeps making fun of her spelling on TV. but
0: Yeah, really. Enough. You're good, yeah. Mackenzie.
1: <laughs> but, you know, I guess she's getting a big check for it. So, um...
0: yeah, maybe she can just let it slide.
1: Yeah, she had a zero dollar <laughs> wager in this in this one, but uh, she finishes with twenty thousand six hundred. Um, so she is an eight day champion as we go into
0: Thursday. Okay, that brings us to Thursday, February twenty seventh, and our contestants are Aaron Getch, a law student from Makeham, Michigan, Allison Sujit, a software quality assurance al- analyst from Louisville, Kentucky and Mackenzie Jones, a program development director from Tulsa, Oklahoma, whose eight-day cash winnings total 204,808. She has broken the $200,000 barrier. Our categories in the round are walls and bridges, magazines come and go, annual events, D in American history, and Alex reminds us that each correct response will begin with the letter D. Cast your pearls, and in this case, cast is referring to who was cast in that movie or that show, so they want the, the star, and before swine. And then in that case, each correct response will be a word in the dictionary that comes up uh, just before swine and begins with S-W-I. That's a lot of instructions.
1: Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> they did reasonably well. They, uh, they missed one, but I wondered if, if like the uh, excessively specific instructions tripped them up a bit. I forgot. I kept forgetting that D in American history would be words starting with D and shouting out wrong guesses that did not start with D. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Surprisingly, I really enjoyed the walls and bridges category, which would not have been one that I gravitated toward. And our contestants went to it sort of toward the later part of the gameplay. But I felt that they were all accessible and in fact, we find Daily Double number one in clue number 18 in the Walls and Bridges category. Aaron finds it. He has 3,000, he's in the lead, Mackenzie has 1,600 and Allison has 2,800. And Aaron, and I believe he's also, he also does something with poker, maybe we found that in the interview. Um, Mm -hmm. But he does an all in many people who want who go on Jeopardy, you know, sort of have a fantasy about saying, let's make it a true daily double, Alex. And I Mm -hmm. wonder if in the post James era, the new fantasy is to say all in. Yeah, I feel like we've been seeing that more.
1: Yeah, but he does have that poker background. (laughs)
0: Yes, So um, and he does a one-handed push, and Alex, in fact, comments on, on the similarity to James there. Yeah. The clue is, European visitors gave a 60-foot-high landmark this alliterative name after seeing mournful vigils of pious Jews. Um, and the answer, which Aaron gets correctly, is the Wailing Wall. Have you been there? I think I heard that you have traveled to Israel. I have been there.
1: Yes. I traveled in Israel the summer after seminary or maybe maybe it was a little past that, but not it was back around like 2010, 2011. So yes, I I've been there and I and I assume that you have at least once probably maybe more than that. Many times. Yeah.
0: I I think oh, maybe 11, 10-11 mm-hmm. times. My husband travels to Israel two to three times a year, leading different groups. And um, of course, always goes. It's considered pejorative to call um, call it the Wailing Wall. It's more commonly called the Western Wall or um, in Hebrew in Israel, it's called the Kotel. And it's actually the retaining wall of the second temple. It's not even the temple itself. It's the retaining wall, but it's the, that last remaining vestige of the second temple that I think was built by Herod and quite impressive. Uh, Lots of controversy about the, the Western wall around accessible prayer. It's considered an Orthodox Jewish synagogue. And so, um, There has been, since 1988, a monthly protest by a group called the Women of the Wall who seek to be able to pray out loud and pray with a Torah in the women's section of the wall. As a liberal Jew, I have some mixed feelings about the Western Wall, and yet it is truly a a place of deep spirituality as well. And that's sort of an interesting contrast.
1: Yeah obviously I don't have that same deep connection, but I, I remember being there and feeling sort of the tension of that. It was one of the few um, places that my husband and I visited in Israel and it was just the two of us together. We weren't with a, we weren't with a group. It was one of the few places where, you know, we had to separate because it's women on one side and men on the other. And I've since uh, gotten to know some female rabbis and and learned a bit about uh, women of the wall and,
0: uh, yeah it's an interesting
1: and complicated place
0: indeed, indeed, it's uh complicated that it's there's less there's more restrictions on expression of Judaism in public places in Israel, like the western wall than mm-hmm. um, in places in this country or or other Western countries. And yeah, I was in Israel and my husband was in seminary in Israel when the women of the wall started in 1988. So oh, wow. it's yeah. uh, you know we we have strong connections to that group. I think uh, they're doing really important civil disobedience every month. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So at the end of the Jeopardy round we have Aaron in the lead with 7,600. Allison has 7,200 and Mackenzie is trailing with 3,000. And we get the categories band emojis, nature, women of the world, a little alliteration, I quit, and Shakespearean jeopardy. They have inserted the word jeopardy in lieu of some other key word in Shakespearean quotes, and you are supposed to identify what word is supposed to be where Jeopardy has been put.
0: That was kind of fun.
1: Yeah, it was fun. Although I struggled with sort of the bottom half of the of the of that category, the The top two I got, the top three I got, and uh, the 1600 and 2000, I, uh, I got tripped up.
0: Me too. Although Allison was able to ring in on the two thousand dollar clue and correctly pull out Colossus, yep. I don't even know what play that would be from. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah, the quote there: "Why, why, man, he doth bestride the narrow world like a Jeopardy." Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, daily double number two comes in at the ninth pick in the Women of the World category, the $1,600 level. Allison finds it and wagers $4,000 of her $10,000. Uh, Mackenzie has $7,800 at that point and Aaron has $8,400. And Mackenzie gets the clue, widow of an anti-Samosa newspaper man. Violetta Chamorro was this country's president from 1980. 90 to 1997. She guesses Peru. The correct response is Nicaragua. So she drops down some. And I think like her, I recognized the name Somoza and had a rough geographic region in mind, but couldn't quite connect with a country.
0: You know, this is very related to my coming of age, the mm. U.S. and Nicaragua and the Iran-Contra Affair is the, you know, the political story of the 1980s, the mid 80s. And I think I went to one of my first protest marches was about Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. And so I th- associate Samosa, uh, Sandinista, Contra or Ortega with Nicaragua. And they're mm-hmm. all, you know, I don't have to think about it. I know it. Yeah. But. But again it's it's much more current events for me in some ways than it is history. Yeah. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I thought the band emojis category was kind of kind of goofy. Um really hard. And they went through it, you know, sort of backwards, more bottom up. Uh-huh. I don't know if they if the
1: emojis they were using are from like some other emoji keyboard than the one I have on my phone, like they looked like clearly emojis but not my emojis, uh, and that was that was kind of throwing me off. But I I sort of enjoyed the the two thousand dollar clue. They only want to be with you, um, and they showed an owl and a puffer fish for uh for Hootie and the Puffer Fish and, and, the the, and yeah that that came right to me, but yeah, it was kind of a, it was kind of a silly category.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I found that to be very hard, even when I knew the band and I think part of it, like with the Hootie and the Blowfish one, one of the hard things when you're on Jeopardy! about video clues is you have to look somewhere else to see the picture. So you're looking at the words first and then you're looking at the picture. In this case, watching from home, you're seeing the picture, but you're only hearing the words. And I feel like I would have been drawn to it much quicker if I had sort of heard Only Wanna Be With You and that had stuck out because I know that's a Hootie and the Blowfish song. Mm -hmm. Then I would have been able to figure it out, but I'm looking at this picture and I can't make sense of it.
1: Right. I don't know, I, I always get sort of amused whenever Jeopardy fe- ventures into like emojis or texting abbreviations or anything like that because I think they're kind of walking a, a tricky generational line there. The contestants on average are younger than the writers on average, I think, and the writers on average are younger than the audience, and it just feels like they're trying to kind of pull together, and and those those newer forms of communication can be generationally specific um, oh, and, yes. and different and different generations use them in different ways and so it always feels like they're kind of <laughs> trying to do something that's a little bit difficult and sometimes to uh to results that are that are kind of humorous to me
0: yes yeah, so well kudos to them for trying and that yeah for I sure that was I thought it was fun but I thought yeah. it was hard yeah
1: I I, I agree I, I thought it was hard
0: so we find, we find Daily Double number three on the 17th clue of the round in the nature category. Allison finds it and she has $8,000 to Mackenzie's $9,000 and Aaron's $8,800 and she wagers $3,000 which will put her in the lead and still keep her in contention if she misses it. And the Clue is extending for about 1,250 miles and visible from space, this marine feature has been called the world's largest ecosystem. The correct response is the Great Barrier Reef and Allison gets it correctly and raises her score to 11,000. As it turns out, the Great Barrier Reef was um, a correct answer, I think, in my first game that I was able to ring in on. Uh, so I have a, you know, I sort of have a soft spot for every question I've ever gotten right on <laughs> Jeopardy. Uh, but also, I had been um, been on an Alaska cruise a few weeks before my tape day, and in the cruise trivia there was a question about the Great Barrier Reef. And to my team, I said, this could come up on Jeopardy! So, you know, that was just a little fun, fun thing to see those things Mm -hmm. that come up over and over again. Yeah, that is fun. Okay, so the scores at the end of the Double Jeopardy! round are Mackenzie playing from third place at 11,400, Aaron has 12,400, and Allison is in the lead at 2,100. So our final Jeopardy! category is 18th century America. And the clue is the first census in 1790 listed 24 urban places. This port was the most populous one in the South. Uh, that's a very apt question to be having because Census Day is coming right up on April 1st. And certainly in California and in my work, we're doing a lot of work to ensure that everyone is counted. The contestants have to figure out what port, what Southern port would uh, would have been, had a sizable population in 1790. We go to Mackenzie first who correctly gets What is Charleston, and she's wagered 9,601. Aaron also is correct, and he has bet everything, 12,400, gets What is Charleston. And Allison, unfortunately, though she's played a great game, is unable to get Charleston, writes What is New Orleans, has wagered the correct cover bet of 3,801, Drops down mm-hmm. to 17,199 for her final score. Yes. Finishes in third. And
1: smart of Aaron to go all in on this one. This is one of the situations where you should make a big wager from second place because Allison making a cover bet drops down only to 17,199, still above where Aaron is. So the only situation where he could win would be if she gets it wrong and he gets it right with a big bet. So in that kind of situation, you might as well just bet everything. Right.
0: Also, he has to cover uh, Mackenzie as well. Right. And they're close. Yep. So, um, yeah, you might as well go all in the the any other calculations. You're just worrying about second place and and that's, mm-hmm. you know, possibly not worth it.
1: Yeah. So for Friday, February 28, we get Meredith Moore, a server from Nightdale, North Carolina, Susan Hill, a pet sitter from Halifax, Massachusetts, and Aaron Getch, a law student from Macomb, Michigan, whose one-day cash winnings total 24,800. And the Jeopardy categories are Art Fleming, ha ha ha, Sports Upsets, Explorers, Spell it like the Brits. This is that spelling category. Each response is spelled differently in Britain than in the U.S. And you have to spell it the British way. We can be heroes and just for one day.
0: A little David Bowie
1: illusion there. Yes, I got that. We should probably go straight to the Daily Double, um, which was the ninth pick. It was in the just for one day category at the $400 level. So Aaron found it and made it a true daily double with 2,800. The other two contestants had zero at that point. And the clue was, traditionally, this is the first full day of the Paschal Triduum leading up to Easter. He responded, what is Thursday? Alex told him that was incorrect. The correct response is Good Friday. Um, So I think... Lori, you know I have thoughts about this. Yes,
0: share your thoughts.
1: (laughs) Um, Okay, so there's been a lot of buzz on Twitter and Jeopardy's Facebook page with people who I think just misread or didn't hear the full clue saying, Thursday is when the Paschal Triduum starts, which is true. The clue called for the first full day. And I knew when I heard it that they were asking for... Friday, but I would say that's not quite correct. Um, And am I right in understanding? So, I mean, this is sort of a Christianity Judaism kind of interfaith kind of that gets a little complex, but am I right in understanding that in Judaism, the day
0: starts with sundown? Yes, that's right. Because then you think in ancient times, you could see when the sun went down when the sun dipped past the horizon, that's when the new day began. Midnight doesn't make any sense because how would you know when midnight has passed? So the ancient Jewish people considered the day to begin when the sun dipped below the horizon.
1: Yeah. And in my seminary education, they pointed us back to the creation story um, in Genesis where, where God is creating the world. And each day ends with there was evening and there was morning the first day, there was evening and there was morning. And so they pointed to that as, you know, here's a place in scripture where we see, you know, like that that it is evening that starts the new day. Because the other obvious way to do it for the ancients would be to start each day with the sun coming up. Right. Um, right. And I think I think practically a lot of us, think of days in that way. Like if you wake up at 3am or you're still awake at 3am on Friday going into Saturday, like, are you still thinking of it as Friday night? Or are you thinking of it as Saturday morning? Like, I think a lot of us would would think of that as, oh, it's really late on Friday night at 3am. Although technically on paper,
0: it's oh, that's Saturday. True. Um, you, I hadn't thought about this until just this moment. But I've begun reading the Daf Yomi, which is the daily Talmud portion. So just like Jews read a, a section of the Torah, the first five books of, of the Jewish Bible every week, and they mm-hmm. cycle through an entire year, they do a cycle of the Talmud that is seven and a half years long. And I haven't been good about keeping up with it, but there was a big section on when you can say your evening prayers. Hmm. And I'm thinking that people that even in ancient times, people might, might not have been awake the moment the sun came up. But oh, you know when the sun yeah. comes down, because there is just as I'm thinking about, there's a lot about do you say your evening prayers when the sun goes down? How late can you say them? What's still considered legitimate? And of course, they want you to say the Shema, which is the, you know, the main prayer. And Mm -hmm. so they're pretty, pretty flexible about how long you can still say it to be considered the evening prayers. So Hmm. I hadn't thought of it until we had this conversation. But perhaps morning was uh, harder to pinpoint because people were not necessarily awake.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the Paschal Triduum goes from... uh, Monday Thursday in the evening um, when we are commemorating Jesus's Last Supper with his disciples through Good Friday where we're, we're remembering the crucifixion. Holy Saturday he was in the tomb. Easter Sunday we are observing like the resurrection. And in a very high church tradition, which mine is not, you would have a Easter Sunday afternoon service. And there are stories that, that in scripture that take place on Easter Sunday afternoon, and so the, the triduum is a seventy-two hour period that goes from the evening of Monday Thursday to the evening of Sunday, um, and triduum means three days. Mm. So I was always taught to think of that as three of those sundown to sundown days, which is how Jesus and the disciples would have thought of it. And you see things about their Jewish observance coming out up through, and, and their culture's Jewish observance coming up throughout the story of Jesus's crucifixion, right? They are, they're gathered on Thursday evening having a Passover meal. I've heard mixed things about whether it's right to call it a Seder because that ritual as it's observed in contemporary times sort of takes shape a little bit later historically. From what I've heard, it's a little deceptive to refer to that as a satyr per se. And then you can see in the in the story of what happened on Good Friday, it's clear that they're in a, a huge rush to get his body into the tomb. And that's because it's Friday and the Sabbath is about to start, at least from from what I've learned. Um, that
0: would make sense.
1: Yeah. And then the, the reason that his body is in the tomb nobody's you know we nobody is there on saturday and the story kind of picks up again on sunday morning is that all of the people in this story would have been observing the sabbath and so the first time that anyone would have gone to the tomb to kind of continue whatever those rituals were um, would be sunday morning and so that's that's when the women go to the tomb with with spices and and find the empty tomb and so it's very sort of tied up with uh, kind of the Passover observances, there's the, like the Sabbath. And so I would argue that it's not that there's a little bit of a problem in how the question is written, in that if you're thinking of a day as being sundown to sundown, then the first full day is Thursday evening, you know, Thursday sundown into Friday sundown. Right. And to say the first full day is Friday is to kind of dismiss the idea of a sundown to sundown day and say, okay, but Thursday evening is only part of a day and Friday is a full day. You know, so I I knew what they were getting at. But I also, you know, I I would expect what am I trying to say here?
0: Maybe a little more cultural competence.
1: Yeah. um, And I don't.
0: I, I normally
1: expect cultural competence from the Jeopardy writers about Christianity, which is so widespread, you know I uh, and and to some extent Judaism, you know I uh, if they asked what month is Rab- during what month does Ramadan occur, you know, I would be annoyed and I would say, well, it's the month of Ramadan, you know, right. and it rotates through. It would have to be like a this year. But it's that same kind of thing that different religions and cultures think about, time and measure time and name time differently. And I think, you know, we've got different understandings of how you measure time running into each other here. So that's my rant.
0: Yeah. I very (laughs) legitimate and, um, and I just learned a lot because I had never even heard of the Pascal Triduum before that term is new to me. Yeah. There's been quite a bit
1: going on, on, uh, on Twitter and Facebook about, about this clue. And I, uh, <laughs> I promised, uh, I promised the Jeopardy fan that we would chat about it after I. I uh <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think it's a it's a good thing to chat about. Yeah, for sure, because there's been a lot of energy around it.
1: Yeah, um, I mean it's it's kind of fun to see people debating the finer points of the liturgical calendar.
0: <laughs> I feel like this year. More than I've ever seen before. I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing people observing Ash Wednesday. I'm seeing the ash on the forehead. And I I know you had written a little bit about that as well. And I I think it's really just that being part of the Jeopardy community has expanded my bubble. Mm. And so, you know, so I'm seeing more diversity. It's certainly not as diverse as our country is, it's not as diverse as. I might like it to be, but it's absolutely widened and it's enriching. I feel like, you know, to see whether it's religious or cultural or um, age or area of the country to have that diversity in um, what people share about themselves is really broadening.
1: Yeah, that's been a real gift of this experience and one that I didn't necessarily expect.
0: Who could have known? Well, we've talked a lot here. I did have one th- comment about um, in the We Can Be Heroes category, the $600 clue is MichaelJFox.org spends 88 cents on every, of every dollar on research programs to fight this disease. Be a hero and donate a buck. It's wonderful what Michael J. Fox is doing to raise awareness around Parkinson's disease. But mm-hmm. as a nonprofit professional, I am really tired of promoting this idea that it's good practice to starve your organization and only spend twelve cents to run the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and government funding is the worst because they really limit what's called overhead spending. But the uh, the next worst is individual donors who somehow think that you know you don't need to have professionals to do the work you just need to get get money out there and um, it really starves organizations so i i just needed to say i wish they weren't promoting this idea
1: i hear you i i um i was wondering if that was the direction you were going to head with this i um am much more interested in knowing how impactful an organization is with the resources it has and I, I personally in my in my thinking about my giving I don't really care how much is like quote unquote administrative because running an organization well lets you be effective with your resources in in my opinion I didn't pick up on it at the time but I, I I'm totally on board now yeah, I share I, your frustration
0: I was triggered Anyway, at the end of the Jeopardy round, we have um, Aaron in first place with $5,400. Susan in second place with $1,800. And Meredith trailing at $600, which brings us to Double Jeopardy, where our categories are historic people on TV, body parts, Higher Education Geography, Transportation, Starts and Ends with B, and Monsters, Inc. Mm-hmm.
1: Which was a, uh, a literature category. Inc spelled I-N-K and it was about stories or, or poems or monsters in, in ink.
0: They went straight to that category, which was so much fun. Yes, I loved it. I was a big fan. I don't know. Well, I'm sure you've read The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay.
1: I have. Yes, I liked it.
0: I, I think it's probably one of the best endings of any novel I have ever read. And
1: mm-hmm. I had the
0: great pleasure of meeting Michael Chabon a couple of years ago and ha- actually having time to have quite a long conversation with him. I don't know if you know his wife, Ayelet Waldman, is also an author, Mm-hmm. And in many ways, much more accessible. I, I have read all of her books, but I have not read all of Michael Chabon's books. So, oh, nice. Now we have book recommendations with Lori, as well. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I haven't read any of her stuff. Um, I've read I've read The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, um, but nothing else by Michael Chabon. I did compete against him in a charity fundraiser spelling bee. Ah. And he is very good at spelling. I can tell you he stayed in longer than I did. And I stayed in longer than a lot of people, including Ira Glass.
0: Wow. What was the circumstances of that?
1: Um, It was a fundraiser for 826NYC, which is like a youth literacy program. I think that I encountered it because I was on like the this american life email list serve and there was like a little like blurb in there like hey are you in new york city there's a spelling bee and i i uh i have spelling bee envy um i uh i was homeschooled i don't necessarily tell everybody that right off the bat but hey podcast listeners i was homeschooled and uh there was no like route into the spelling bee system in my in my region at that time and spell, and I'm pretty great at spelling actually. um And so I was like, oh, a, you know, a charity spell, charity fundraiser spelling bee. It's for a good organization. There are a bunch of really kind of cool niche celebrities, and you could just buy a ticket. And as a as a competitor, I was able to raise a little bit of money. And then I think you could buy cheats also, which I didn't I didn't do too much of. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a really fun event, and uh,
0: yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, actually, I
1: yeah it was it was great. I uh, I stayed in for a pretty long time. I went out on the word onager, O N A G E R onager.
0: Ah, what would you do spell it with an e in the middle there? Yes,
1: yes, I think that's what I did. Yeah, I uh, my big secret is to always ask for language of origin but I think they got irritated at me. And um, I, <laughs> I, they gave the definition a wild Asian beast of burden. And I said, what's the language of origin? And um, the, the judge looked at me and said, Asian. Um, not that the language of origin would have necessarily helped me on that one. But yeah, I, uh, that was actually one of my, um, my Jeopardy stories that didn't, make it into the actual interview segment. It was like on Alex's card.
0: Yeah, well, how great that you got to share it now.
1: Well, yeah, there you go. Now the world knows.
0: Yep, I can spell better than Ira Glass. At least,
1: you know, some things. (laughs) (laughs) Very small sample size.
0: (laughs) So we get to Daily Devil um, number two on the 12th clue of the round in higher education geography, Aaron finds it. He is in the lead with 6,600 to Susan's 5,400 and Meredith's 2,200. And he wagers 4,000, which is a good, good size wager. He would still be in second place if he were to lose, but you know, you don't wager to lose, Mm -hmm. you wager to get it right. And the clue is Founded in 1853, Washington University isn't in D.C. or Washington State, but in this city on the Mississippi River. Aaron correctly answers St. Louis, and that brings his score up to 10,600. Puts him with a pretty significant lead.
1: Uh, Daily Double number three is in the transportation category at the $2,000 level. Susan finds it and wagers 2,500 on the 25th pick. Um, she has 11,000, Aaron has 14,200, Meredith has 7,000. So she's wagering to get into a stronger second place, but still stay in contention if she misses And the clue is, the vehicle of choice on the Oregon Trail was this wagon with a type of flat land in its name. Uh, She guesses Conestoga, which was also the only kind of Oregon Trail vehicle I could think of, um, but
0: the correct response there is a prairie schooner, so she drops down some. That was a hard one. That was hard. Yeah, I I also, you know, Conestoga was the only thing I could think of. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well, a valiant effort for Susan. Yes.
1: Yes. So, going into Final Jeopardy, Aaron has 16,600, Susan has 8,500, and Meredith has 7,000. Their category is the Civil War. They get the clue. The Chicago Tribune called Clement Vallandigham an anti war Ohio Democrat, a traitor, and a hissing one of these creatures. Meredith has wagered 1,800 and has what is a snake in the grass, Uh, something crossed out in her response also, that's incorrect or not specific enough. Uh, Susan similarly has what is a snake with a $1,500 wager. Aaron is the only one to get it correct with a $401 wager and the response, what is a copperhead? So he is our two day champion with $41,801 and we'll see him again on Monday. All right.
0: Yeah, I think Copperhead was another uh, Learned League answer. Yes. And I knew what they were going for and I still couldn't think of it. So that's two times that I haven't gotten it.
1: Yeah, I uh, knew that it was sort of in my brain somewhere. But then I kept like I kept thinking hissing what and then going to hissing cockroach, which I knew was incorrect. <laughs> but I couldn't I couldn't get it out of my head long enough to to come up with I I I uh to come up with the fact that I knew I had heard at some point recently.
0: Well, that brings us to our deep dive and quiz. Did you wanna take a guess? I'm wondering if we're talking about the Suez Canal. Nope.
1: All right. What about Mount Ararat?
0: No. Good good guess, but nope. I get one more. All
1: right. One more. We're not talking about Edgar Lee Masters, are we? No. All right. Okay. What are we doing?
0: Well, you are definitely on the right track uh, with Egypt, and the it is Wednesday. I, I had actually started thinking about something from Tuesday's Game, and then when I watched Wednesday's, I had the, what I needed to do. So it's in the Names of the 1920s category, and it's the With Wonderful Things Before His Eyes, This Man Broke Through Into the Inner Tomb of King Tut on November 26, 1922. Um, and the answer is Howard Carter who famously discovered King Tut's tomb. So I'm absolutely drawing on my trip to Egypt and really want to go back in time and um, talk about the pharaohs and King Tut Egyptology and the discovery of King Tut's tomb. So you ready? (laughs) I am ready, I'm excited. (laughs) I really didn't know very much about ancient Egypt before I traveled to Egypt. And it was uh, fascinating to learn about it. So the truth is I did a little less research because my research turned out to be travel. One of the things to just give context about ancient Egypt Ancient Egypt is really divided into three different kingdoms with um, different periods in between. So, the first kingdom, the Old Kingdom, are the third to the eighth dynasties, and that is from 2686 to 2160 BCE. Um, and that's when we see the building of the Steppe Pyramid and the Great Pyramid, uh, the the next dynasty, the next sort of stable period. And in between those periods, they have what they call intermediate periods, which were m- more unstable um, and more changeover of dynasties in there. But the, the second, the Middle Kingdom, which is the 11th to the 14th dynasty, is from 2055 to 1650 bce and then we find the third the what's considered the new kingdom which is where i'm going to focus and those are the 18th to 24th dynasties uh, 1550 to 1069 bce and it's during that time that Uh, The pharaohs and the priests were building the famous temples, the Valley of the Kings, the tombs that you see. Pharaohs were considered to be gods. And I want to start by talking about King Tut's father. Um, King Tut's father was originally named Amenhotep, which... The god that was worshipped, Amun or Amun Ra, was the sun god, and you know Egyptians had a polytheistic worldview with multiple gods. Amenhotep changed his name to Akhenaten, and really became what was considered the first monotheist, and I I found that to be fascinating. He changed his name as from. Amenhotep and you can hear the word Amen in there and I think it means Amun is satisfied and changing it to Ak-Naten Aten is the god Aten and Aten is the solar disk so the idea is that instead of having to worship through the temples and the priests and then the priests were were, you know, controlled a lot of the treasury, that the people would only worship Aten and that he, Akhenaten, would be the embodiment of Aten on earth. So in this way, he was doing two things. He was really reinterpreting the religious understanding of society, but also consolidating his own power and um, income. He was married to Nefertiti, who was his uh, main queen, and he moved the main, you know, sort of where the pharaohs lived from from Thebes to Amarna, and built really his own city in Amarna, which was a really a monument to himself and to Aten, and that was not super popular with the people. Hmm. They didn't really like being told that the gods they had worshipped all along were no longer God. So when he dies, there's some controversy. People aren't super happy with the idea of Aten and monotheism. And so after his death, it's not clear who is actually the Pharaoh. There's some theories that it's actually Nefertiti who becomes pharaoh and she disguises, she's portrayed as a male, but it's not unheard of for a woman to be pharaoh. In fact, several pharaohs earlier, Hatshepsut was a pharaoh, and again, we saw her temple when we were in Egypt. and. She, um, they portray her, she is portrayed as a man, like both male and female, but really as a male in order to have that legitimacy. So there's some thinking that Nefertiti followed Akhenaten's death and really began the um, transition back to the worship of Amun. Hmm. King Tut is not, uh, was originally named when he was born, named Tuten Aten. So in other words his the end of his name was Aten Tutankh Aten which is the living image of Aten. And as you know the sort of zeitgeist of the Egyptian people shifted and the subsequent pharaohs moved back to the worship of Amun, Tutankhamun, the name was changed from Aten to Amun. So Tutankhamun is Tutankhamun, which is the symbol for life, Amun, the living image of Amun, which is really symbolizing the return to the gods that they had worshiped before. No more of this monotheism. It's interesting how um, the guides really all talked about this being the first monotheism and comparing it to um, you know even a possibility of an inspiration for Judaism, which was you know, all around, beginning around the same time and a monotheistic tradition, which was so unusual at that time. As I was preparing to go to Egypt, I I like to learn about a place by reading historical fiction, and Mm -hmm. um, I read a book called Nefertiti, and this was all that she was writing about, about Akhenaten and Nefertiti, and it was fascinating. Her research was excellent. Anyway, Tun takes the throne when he's nine years old. He's the last of this royal family, and he... Is the vizier and eventually successor is Ai, who may or may not have been related to him. Um, he marries his half sister, Sanama Amun. So there's another Amun in there. And they have two daughters, which they lose, I think, one during the pregnancy and one shortly after. Uh, Which makes sense. They're married, half sisters, genetically, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And he's nine or 10. He, He dies young. He lives to be, I think, about 18. So about a nine year reign. And he is the one who fully restores ancient Egyptian religion to the Egyptian people. He was believed to be physically disabled with a deformity of his left foot. And in his tomb, they found a cane as well as body armor and bows. And it seems like he had other health issues, including scoliosis and malaria. They can know this because they found so many things intact from him. Yeah. Before I get into the discovery of his tomb, I just wanted to talk a little bit about you know, you have these very impressive monuments in ancient Egypt that were, I mean, they're huge. And you think that these are, how could they be lost? How could we not know they exist and then have them discovered in the, in the 18th century? But... Following the sort of fall of the ancient Egyptian empire and you know, then the conquest of Alexander the Great and then the Roman empire, you see the Arab conquest in 641. And it's only the Christian Egyptians, the Copts that keep alive the ancient language. The Copts are actually hiding in many of these temples during the Arab conquest, because they were persecuted huh. at that time, and what you see is that both the Christians and the Arabs ha- are really offended by this the- this uh, polytheistic concept and by the representations of gods. So they, where they've hidden, they've actually chiseled out the faces of the gods because it's offensive when you're you know you're bringing this I mean, it's not so new by the by the 7th century Christianity is not new anymore but they they made those temples their safe places and with uh, the rise of islam those places are really abandoned and you know sort of eaten by the desert hmm So we don't really think or hear much about ancient Egypt until the time of Napoleon, when Napoleon conquers Egypt and French archeologists and engineers begin to find these wonders. So in 1799, The Rosetta Stone is found and the Rosetta Stone is a trilingual Stella that has Greek hieroglyphs and demotic texts. So because they knew Coptic and Greek, they were able to figure out what in the world they were saying you know, on the walls of the temples and in the tombs. And it's quite remarkable to go to these places. And all the walls are covered with hieroglyphs. Um, And they're really telling stories. If you think about, I mean, I really likened it to middle-aged churches where people are not literate. So you tell the story with the tapestries and with the frescoes and the paintings. I know, you know, they didn't have a Bible in front of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And very similarly, they're telling the stories on the walls of the temples and also on the walls of the tombs. And I'm not sure how many of the people could read all the hieroglyphs, but they're representative in a completely different way, of course, than English letters are. So in 1822, it's Jean-Francois Champollion who is able to decipher the Rosetta Stone. And that really opens up A period of discovery but also of I would say western conquest and uh, and really western looting of these ancient sites so that's sort of a political comment and you see that there are obelisks and there are pieces that belong that are from Egypt that are literally lifted up and brought to the British Museum to to Berlin, to France. So I have some questions. I, I I came away having holding some questions about that that I, I wanna I'll loop back to. But anyway, the eighteen hundreds and into the early nineteen hundreds is a time where archaeologists, scientists, explorers are really they have a newfound interest in Egypt and Egyptology. Mm-hmm. So to now get back to the question, Carter was an archeologist and he was employed by Lord Carnavone to supervise excavations of the nobles' tombs um, in Thebes. In 1914, they, they were given a concession to dig in the Valley of the Kings and Carter was leading the work. They were interrupted by the First World War And during that time, Carter spent the war years working for the British government as a diplomatic courier and translator. And he resumed his work toward the end of 1917. By 1922, Lord Carnarvon was dissatisfied because uh, they weren't finding anymore. They felt like they'd really found everything they were going to find. And he told Carter, you've got one more season of funding. For a significant find or you're done. But Carter was convinced there was something else there and really lobbied to continue. He returned to the Valley of the Kings and was investigating a line of huts that had been abandoned a few years earlier. And the crews clearing huts and debris. And on the 4th of November, 1922, the water boy stumbled on a stone and spilled water. And that turned out to be the top of a flight of stairs. And that's what made it clear that there was something underneath. And they started digging and found a tomb that had been untouched. And that was King Tut's tomb. And what was remarkable about it was most of the tombs had been plundered by grave robbers and not just the you know, the sort of the Western explorers, but, you know, the subsequent generations, they were full of gold. And so that, you, you know, you figure if you're looking at, you know, 10 generations later, and you need gold for your own tomb, maybe you're going to go in and pull out what was there for your ancestors, or for maybe not the same dynasty. Carter was able to dig out the steps. The, the doorway had cartouches and the cartouche is sort of an oval shape with hieroglyphs. In it, and that's how, you know, it's a name. Mm-hmm. Um, and only the royalty had cartouches on the 26th of November. He was able to get in through the doorway and it says uh, with. Lord Carnivone and his daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert and others, using a chisel that his grandmother had given him for his 17th birthday, he was able to peer in by the light of a candle and see that many of the gold and ebony treasures were still in place. Hmm. He didn't know at that time whether it was a tomb or merely an old cache, but it took three or four years to go through the whole Thing And there were just so many treasures. Months were spent cataloging the contents. And on 16th of February, 1923, Carter opened the sealed doorway and found that it led to a burial chamber. um, And he saw the sarcophagus of Tutankhamun. And it's considered to be the best preserved and most intact uh, pharaonic tomb ever found in the Valley of the Kings. Uh, the discovery was covered by the world's press, and that's the story. Most of the artifacts went to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, and some went, of course, to Britain. And this is sad. Despite being involved in the greatest archaeological find of his time, Carter received no honor from the British government. Huh. Um, in 19- <laughs> I know. <laughs> But he made it to be a jeopardy clue, and we've never heard of Lauren Carnarvon. Yeah, so there you go. That's what it's really about. That is absolutely what it's really about. The study of King Tut's tomb really has excited people and eliminated the imagination of so many. Uh, there's the tomb, the the artifacts and a, you know, a smaller, museum showing has made tours, certainly in the United States, around the countries. Uh, Even when I I had a a layover in London and there were uh, posters for King Tut, it still very much captures the imagination. And just I wanted to finish by saying that really the question of who are the legitimate inheritors of these ancient Egyptian artifacts and colossal buildings and history is really a question for me. Mm-hmm. The, I asked our guide whether or not the Egyptians of today feel a, um, a historical connection with ancient Egyptians. And his answer was, no, they really are not connected. They don't share a narrative. There's no narrative that ties ancient Egypt to modern Egypt. That was really broken by, mostly by the Arab conquest. And the Egyptians of today are inheritors of the Arab conquest. There is really an open question about places like this, uh, where there are treasures of antiquity and there are you know, civil strife. And how are those preserved? So I personally have mixed feelings. On the one hand, it feels like stealing that the British and the French and the Germans took pieces of Egypt and brought them back to Western museums. Mm -hmm. Yet on the other hand, they're preserved and people can see them and we can learn about it. And Uh, Right now, the Egyptian government is stable and they're working with all these other countries to preserve and to bring tourism in to look at these things. But you think about Syria and the destruction of artifacts there. You think about the Buddhas that were destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that it's a legitimate question. I don't know who... what the right answer is to say we as Westerners should be the ones that feels colonialistic and really not right. But also how do we, you know, if we find that there are treasures. And
1: like having the artifacts further away from places of active conflict, I guess I, I hear you on
0: that. Right. And I'm not really making a case for, for one over the other. Certainly right now, the feeling is that those artifacts belong where they were found. And Mm. the Egyptian government is working on building a big new, new museum to house all those things. And I hope people go and learn about it and go to the places. It's so much richer to go to the actual place and be there and see it in the location. It gives so much more context, but I have to say there's a little piece of me that's glad that if someone can't go there, they can go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, or they can
1: mm-hmm.
0: go to Paris or Britain and still be aware of this tremendous culture that existed. Yeah, yeah
1: that, that totally makes sense. And this was really cool. I, I did not know anything near, uh, the amount that you just that you just shared with us, so I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. I didn't know any of it before either, and um, yeah. that was travel just... has a way of doing that. I know. Uh, so that brings me to my quiz. Are you ready? I'm ready. So the theme of the quiz is uh, Egypt, and it's not just ancient Egypt. Okay. Um, my first one. Middle schoolers today may be familiar with ancient Egyptian mythology thanks to the Kane Chronicles, by a best-selling Texas author whose best-known adventure series features characters who interact with Greek gods and goddesses. Name the author.
1: Is that Rick Riordan?
0: I yes! Say, yeah. Rick Riordan. Riordan. Ah, that's, the,
1: that's the thing where you've only seen it written. You've never heard anyone say it out loud. Riordan. Rick Riordan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah so he's famous for the Percy Jackson series. If your kids haven't read that yet, when your son gets a little bit older, they're fabulous. And he's a wonderful writer. Oh, nice. I have not read that series
1: myself, um, although I sometimes read things that are for kids or teens. But yeah, that's on our list of uh, things that we're going to uh, read as a family eventually.
0: Book recommendations with Lori, I recommend everything, all of his stuff, um, but definitely the Percy Jackson series. And in fact, I have him to thank for... Winning my first game of Jeopardy because the reason I knew that my answer, which was what is Tartarus, which put me over Rick Terpstra, was thanks to uh, the Percy Jackson series. Oh, nice. (laughs) Okay, we are going to move to modern, more modern. Former president of Egypt, Hosni Mubarak, was in the news last week. He died on February 25th. Mubarak's term, if we can call it that, as president, began and ended with violence. For five points each, what event elevated Mubarak into office in 1981, and what event swept him from office in
1: 2011? Oh, um, I'm not sure what event elevated him into office. I think that he was removed from office during like the Arab Spring, um, if it I don't know yeah, if that's...
0: that's... That's what I was looking for. For, All looking, right. for removal. Okay. And
1: I, I don't think I know enough to make a good guess for how he assumed office.
0: He was brought into office because of the assassination of Anwar Sadat. Oh, okay. Yep. That totally makes sense. That is five points. All right. Now we're going to go back in time. The In the Osiris myth, which is the most important Egyptian myth, I'm told... Set is portrayed as the usurper who killed and mutilated his own brother Osiris. Osiris's wife, Isis, reassembles his corpse and resurrected her dead husband long enough to conceive his son and heir, who is represented by a falcon. What is the name of this falcon headed god of Egypt?
1: Ooh. I have a guess. I'm not very confident. I feel like I'm gonna. I feel like I'll be wrong, and then I'll groan when you say the right thing. Um, is it Ra? Uh, no, Rise nah. the
0: sun god. Rise the sun god. Right.
1: All right. Who is it's it?
0: Horus. Oh, Horus. Ah, okay. Yes. Of well, course at least it is. you felt like you did know it. That means the question is not too crazy. Yeah. No, that was that was a totally fair question. Okay, we're going back to pop culture. So Steve Martin is well known for starring in movies like The Jerk, Roxanne and Parenthood, L.A. Story. He's a thoughtful performer, writer and banjo player. Early in his career, he was well known for his comedy albums and the song King Tut, uh, which Martin wrote and initially performed on Saturday Night Live in 1978, came out during the King Tut craze that accompanied the popular traveling exhibit of the artifacts from the tomb so what was the name of the album on which the song appeared and here you get a hint the title of the album was a catchphrase that's associated with one of Martin's recurring characters in a shtick that also features Dan Aykroyd on SNL oh um
1: I feel like I'll recognize it when you say it but I don't know
0: Um, The answer is a wild and crazy guy.
1: Oh, yep, that does ring a bell. But I was never going to pull that.
0: Okay. I do know the King Tut song, though. Yeah, we pretty much sang it all through Egypt. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going back to ancient Egypt. Okay. In ancient Egypt, the afterlife was considered to be a continuation of life on Earth. And after one had passed through various difficulties and judgment in the Hall of Truth, a paradise, which was a perfect reflection of one's life on Earth. In order to reach the paradise, however, one needed to know exactly where to go, how to address certain gods, what to say at certain times, and how to comport oneself in the afterlife, in the land of the dead, which is why one would find an afterlife manual extremely useful. Thankfully the Egyptians provided one and wrote it on the walls of the tombs to help out the king. What is the name of that manual?
1: Oh um Uh the phrase the book of the dead is coming to mind. I'm not and confident. That's
0: it. Yay, okay. I'm gonna All give right. it to you. I was just <laughs> I was totally about to hedge and be like, I'm not
1: confident, but uh but yay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yay, okay.
0: Okay, so you have 25 points going all right, to all right, the right. final.
1: Let's, let's go big or go home. We're betting all of them.
0: All right. Okay, for 25 points. Uh, while I was in Egypt, there was a story in my news feed about the largest Jewish prayer gathering in Egypt for decades. From across the diaspora, some 180 Jews of Egyptian origin flew to the land of their ancestors for a Shabbat dedicated to marking the newly restored 14th century Eliyahu Hanavi Synagogue in a wonderful Egyptian city. Name the city. Ooh, a
1: wonderful Egyptian city. I'm wondering if you used the word "wonderful" to evoke uh, the Seven Wonders. So I'm—I don't know anything about this, but I'm going to guess Giza.
0: Oh no.
1: Oh, no, no, oh, I should have, no, I should have guessed Alexandria. Yeah, Yeah, Alexandria. Alexandria, all right, I don't, I don't think I get it, because I think you told me I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think you kind of think of it as Greek, almost. Yeah, I
1: think that's the thing, but I should have gotten it. All right. I finished with zero, so I'll take my zero points and put them with all my other points. (laughs) <laughs> do, do whatever i do with the points um no that was that was really fun um and that was a, that was a good set of questions well it has been super fun having you with us Lori. it's my pleasure so thank you let me take a moment to plug our patreon um we're on patreon at potent potables we try to be good about posting stuff on there. We've got to, we've got to get better at this, um, but I know Kyle is working on like an outtakes reel to go on there. There are different levels of support, but any of those levels gets you access to our bonus content. I will also let you know that you can uh, find us on social media. We're on Twitter at potables one and Facebook at potables. Our website is PotentPod.com, and if you want to email us, you can do that at cast at gmail.com. Uh, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It would be helpful if you would leave us a rating or a review as well. Um, and if you know anyone who would enjoy Potent Potables, um, Try to mention it to them. We uh, we love ha- getting new listeners. So thanks again for joining us, Lori. Kyle will be back next week to talk about another week of Jeopardy, uh, but it has been so fun having you on.
0: It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. Absolutely. And may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.